good morning, everybody. It's certainly a pleasure to see you all here. We have a nice crowd with us uh, today for worship. Beautiful weather outside as well. I'm glad for our visitors and uh, for those who have been away from us. And now that you're back, we're certainly thankful for that as well. This morning is the final installment in this series that we've been doing for the past several weeks. I hope you haven't gotten burned out on it. I hope you have not sat there thinking, when is he going to be done? Because what you're th- saying is, when's he going to be done talking about love? And that's really on you if that's what you're thinking, but I don't want to judge. Um, hopefully you haven't gotten sick of just hearing the same kind of thing. What I've tried to do is make every sermon in the series its own unique thing because the song from which the series is based the song itself is very unusual. We have a lot of songs in our hymnal that we are, our online or you know digital hymnal, whatever you want to call it, that we sing that are taken directly from Scripture, and that's what this song does. We have a lot of songs uh, that we sing regularly that uh, have beautiful harmony and beautiful four-part harmony to it. But I don't know. This may be the only song that we have. The greatest commands. That when we sing, we're singing uh, four, the four different parts are singing four completely different things. And it's really amazing how that song with the four parts, four completely different sentences being sung, all somehow perfectly harmonized together. Not just melodically, harmonically, not just in the sound of it, but the way that the song is structured and arranged where even though we're all four parts singing four completely different things, it sounds like one cohesive unit. And it really is uh, goosebump-inducing to have sung it the past several weeks. And I know we'll sing it again as the year progresses. And I hope that when we do sing it again here and there throughout the year and the years to come, that uh, hopefully something that was taught in this series will, will be there in the back of your mind and will have stuck there and maybe planted and taken root. And you can better appreciate uh, what we've been talking about. And what have we been talking about? We started the series a few weeks ago, taking four parts, each one for each verse, and we started with verse number one, uh, which is 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8, where John extols us to love one another, and then tells us why. For love is of God. He who loves knows God and is born of God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then from there, a couple of weeks ago in the second part of the sermon series, we went to the second verse of the song, which is itself a direct quotation from at least a part of 1 Corinthians 13. The whole chapter, the whole greater context, chapters before and after, it's all about how the Corinthian people have lost their love for one another. And so in chapter 13 of Corinthians, Paul basically breaks down what love is supposed to look like. Not a definition of love, but an application of love. Here's what it looks like when a person loves as we're commanded to love, like we are commanded in 1 John 4. Love, when it's put into practice, looks like a person who bears all things, who believes all things, who hopes all things, and who endures all things. And we do those things because, to repeat the refrain that goes on throughout that song, Because God is love, and God bears with us, and God endures with us, and God hopes with us. God has these strong feelings of love toward us, but I am a child of God. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, therefore I, we, us, must be a people who bear all things, and who believe all things, and who hope all things, who endure all things. Because our master did those things and does those things. God is love, which is where we were last week. That simple 
tenor refrain over and over and over. God is love. God is love. God is love. God is love. It's just that's the earworm part of the song that just gets stuck in your head. And rightly so. Never forget it. Never get it out of your mind. God is love. God is love. God is love. Which takes us now to the final part of the sermon series. The one from which the title is derived. What are the greatest commands? What is the greatest command? Why is the song called that? It was because of verse 4. So open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 12. And let's get a little background to this question. It's also found in Matthew chapter 22, but we're going to look at Mark's account here because it includes so many different words that we sing when we sing the song. Look at Mark 12, starting in verse 28. Notice with me what the text says. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, that is Jesus and his audience, and perceiving that he, Christ, had answered them well, asked him, which is the, the King James says, first commandment of all. Your Bible might say, which is the great commandment. That's how Matthew's translation puts it in his account. What's the greatest commandment of the law here? It is what is the first commandment. Let's understand this scribe, this being a scribe by profession, he is, his nose is always a millimeter away from holy text. He studies it, he reads it, he writes it. He does nothing but consume it in one form or another his entire life, not just nine to five, but this is his whole existence devoted to the word of God. This kind of person is not asking a question for which he knows there is no answer. He wants to hear what this rabbi's answer will be so he can compare it to everything else he has studied and everything else he has learned to see if this so-called master teacher really is all he's cracked up to be because he's listened in on a little bit. He's heard this person can really answer some questions pretty well. So let me ask him a big fundamental question. This is not a question that is um, unusual. This is not a question that had never been asked before. This is a basic question asked for the purpose of hearing a rabbi, a master teacher, give what he hopes to be a really insightful, enlightening answer to what should be a very simple question. What is the first commandment? What is the primary commandment let's understand another thing what this person is not asking and what jesus is not implying with his answer is here's the only commandment that matters that's not what it is that's not what he's asking nor is it jesus answer he is not saying here is the only commandment that if you if you answer this one you don't have to worry about any of the rest no that's not what he's saying if you just do this one the others aren't as important no that's not what he's saying the first commandment he's also not saying what is the, the first one, if you were writing down the whole list of them, number one, it's this. It's not even that. Because the first commandment of the law of Moses is, don't have any other gods before God. Now, you might hear that and think, oh, well, that's basically what we're talking about. Love God, don't have any gods before God. But uh-uh, that's not what Jesus is doing. Because now you're getting ahead of the master. He's going to get you to why loving God and having no gods before God are connected. But the actual literal first one written down, first one chiseled in stone, is not what Jesus says, because that's not what he's answering. What Jesus was asked, and what Jesus answers, is what is the commandment that precedes all commandments? What is the thing that is kind of the the linchpin to the whole commandment structure? What is the proto-commandment? What is the motivation behind all the commandments? What is the commandment that if I obey this commandment, I will have no trouble obeying all the other commandments? That's what Jesus has asked. 
And that's what Jesus answers. Here is the command that if you obey this command, if you really get this one, you will never ask, why do I have to about any other commandment? You will never question God. You will never doubt God. You will never defiantly stand against God. God said it. You'll do it. No thought about it. Why? Because this commandment is being observed. What is, Master, the commandment over all commandments? What is the commandment that spreads its eagle's wings and envelops the whole rest of them? And to answer that, Jesus takes the person's mind not to uh, Exodus chapter 20, not to the first time the commandments of God were given to the nation of Israel. He doesn't take them to Exodus 20 because what was Exodus 20? It was a listing of commands to a nation that was not going to obey those commands. Moses stands, he comes down to the foot of Mount Sinai, he's got two tablets of stone in his hand. They are chiseled on those stones, ten laws. These are not the only ten laws of Israel. The commandments of Moses range in the hundreds. This is just the first ten that God put in stone. The first important ten, the first very symbolically important ten, what they represent and so forth, but it's just the top ten out of hundreds. So Moses comes down and he just starts in Exodus 20. He just starts with, God saved you, have no other gods before God. Don't have any graven images, etc. The whole Ten Commandments. And that's what Moses says. And then the people go on, and then they get the rest of the law along the way, and they start making their way, and they make their way pretty easily to Sinai, or from Sinai to the Promised Land. They make their way pretty effortlessly to the front doorstep of Canaan, Numbers chapter 13. And then they send in a spy, a scout, we'll say. One scout from each tribe. So 12 scouts go into Canaan's land and they survey the land and they come back to deliver their report to the people and they say, it is everything God said it was. It is truly a land flowing with milk and honey. It is prosperous. It is bountiful. It is green and lush and fertile and it's everything we could ever want. Ah, there's a little problem. Little problem. Ten of them say, a little bit of an issue, there are giants in the land and there are nations with very big armies and chariots, and horses, and spears, and, and ferocious soldiers that we could not possibly stand against, and if we try to go into that land, they will squash us like a bug. We can't possibly defeat them, ten of them say. The other two scouts, Caleb and Joshua, come back and they say, well, yes, there are, but God. Not, not a single nation in Canaan is bigger than Egypt, and what did God do to Egypt? What did God do to Pharaoh? Not a single ruler in Canaan is more powerful than Pharaoh was. And what did God do to Pharaoh? Broke him in half. Not a single army that we will ever meet in Canaan is more ferocious than the Egyptian army. And what did God do to the Egyptian army? Drowned them in the Red Sea. And what did he do to us? Paved a path for us to cross it. We could take this land. We are able to overcome any obstacle to take this land. Two of them said, and ten of them were scared. And the people listened to the ten and not the two in Numbers 14. They panicked, they wept, they wailed, they cried, they said hope is gone, woe is us, doom and gloom. And so God says, well, you know what? If that's your attitude, then you don't deserve this land. Turn around, get back to the wilderness, and start marching. Start walking, start wandering. For 40 years, that people who did not trust God that people that were not prepared to obey God, that people who, despite what they may have told themselves, did not love God, were punished by God with wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then when that whole generation was dead, 
the next generation came up, led by Caleb and Joshua, into the promised land and to take it and to conquer it as they always knew they could 40 years ago. Caleb and Joshua always knew. Before that happened, though, as they are once again the next generation now standing at the front door of Canaan's land, Moses, who is not going to enter the promised land with them, he stands to deliver a series of speeches. He stands to deliver a second telling of the law, thus the name Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy, Moses gives the people a goodbye speech on the one hand, and a here is what your previous generation was told about the law of God, and here's what they failed to keep, the law of God. So I'm going to tell you again the law of God. And when Moses comes to Deuteronomy 6, when he comes to the giving of the law, he does not start in Deuteronomy 6, this time with <clears throat> number one, have no gods before God. That's not how he starts. That's the first one chiseled in stone, but that's not how he starts. He starts with, hear, O Israel, listen up, nation. Listen to what your ancestors did not listen and understand. The Lord, our Lord, is one Lord. God, our God, is one God. He is a singular entity. Yes, I know there's Father, Son, Spirit. There's a three-part nature. There's a multifaceted being here. But Moses says, forget all that for a second. We worship one Almighty. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God has singular authority. He is your sole decision maker. He is your sole lawgiver. He is the one. And if you have this one, you need worry about nothing else because there's a lot of God's little g in that nation that you're going into. And you're going to be tempted to follow after those gods. Here, Israel, you have one God to follow. Singular authority. And what does that one God with his singular authority command? Here, O Israel, here is your commandment that precedes all the commandments. Here is the commandment that motivates the obedience to every other commandment. Here is the commandment that your fathers and mothers did not follow. You shall love that one God with everything there is that makes you you. There is one God who made you. So with all of you, love that one God. With all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Here, Israel, is your singular motivator for every commandment I'm about to tell you. The same commandments your parents chose not to obey. Here's what they were lacking. They did not love the one who gave the command. Here, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Now here's what Jesus says. When he's asked the question, his mind goes back to Deuteronomy 6, to the great motivator. And so as he's answering the question, what's the great commandment? What's the primary commandment? What's the proto-commandment? Jesus says, well, what did Moses say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. But the word heart, as Jesus uses it, or as Moses used it, the word heart is not the organ which pumps the blood in your chest. The word heart is not ooey-gooey feelings you have towards your valentine. The word heart is this, this unseeable, feelable motivator. Specifically, in the case we're going to consider it in this sermon, the motivator of the things that you say. There is also the motivator of the things you do, but we'll get that when we talk about strength. Right now, just focus on what Jesus says in another text. Open your Bibles to Matthew 15 and listen to quite an interesting statement made by our great master. 
Listen to Matthew 15, verses 17 through 19. One of my favorite little ways Jesus puts something, and it's never really preached because he talks about pooping, and that's what we're going to talk about. Let's look at Matthew 15, 17. Do you not understand that whatever's in, whatever enters into the mouth goes out into the belly, goes out, cast out into the draught? That's your toilet. That's what Jesus says. He states it as this axiom that everybody should understand. You know what happens to the things that go in your body. What happens to the things that go in my body, Jesus? I poop them out. We don't need to be ashamed of that. Everybody poops. That's what Jesus says. You know when things go in your body, they come out your body. But then he gets philosophical. Look at the next statement. Do you not understand that whatever enters into the mouth goes out, uh, in the belly, goes out into the drought? But the things which proceed out of the mouth, wait. Let's just stop and think about that. Because I know what happens to the stuff I put in my body. I know where it goes. But where does the stuff come from that comes out of my body? What comes out of my body? If I say something to you, if I say I love you, where did that come from? If I say I hate you, where does that come from? If I say yes, I will, or no, I won't. If I say let us go, or if I say it can't be done. That idea, those words come from somewhere. And Jesus says those things which come out of your mouth come from your, what does your Bible say? Heart. They come from your heart. He doesn't mean the organ which pumps your blood. He doesn't mean they comes from your ooey-gooey feelings. He means those things which you say come from who you are on the inside. It comes from somewhere that was motivated to say those things. If I tell you I love you and I'm sincere, it's because I was motivated to tell you that, either by something you did or by in response to something Jesus did for me, as it is in 1 John 4. Either way, there's a motivation that propels those words to come out of me. If I tell you I hate you, something inside me propelled those words out of me. Now, I might lie. I might put a filter right here over my mouth. I filter over my mouth so that I mean hatred here and I filter it and I say love here. And that makes me a liar and the truth is not in me, 1 John 4. But if I put the filter here, if I put the filter on the inner man, then I control what I think and I control what motivates me. And then the things that I say are filtered through. I'm a Christian. I can't hate this person. I must love this person. I can't say let's not. I must say let's do. I can't say you can't. I must say we will through Christ. And I will put that filter on my heart so that when it comes from my heart, it comes out my mouth pure, not hypocritical. I don't have to lie. I don't have to deceive. It can be who I am because who I am in here is my heart. And from my heart comes my words. And I must love God with all sincerity. I must love God with everything that is me, all my motivator of my words. So that when I tell God I love him, not just with actual words, but with actions and so forth, it is sincere. And I'm not going through the motions. And I'm not half-heartedly giving him just a little of my time. But I'm giving him all that I have. Because I love God, not with some of my heart, but with all of my heart. With all of my motivator of the things that I say, which reflect the things that I do. If the filter is here, and not just here. Love God with all your heart. Second, Jesus says, love God with all your soul. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 45, just to introduce the idea. 1 Corinthians 15, which we talked about this in, I taught in room one this morning, a little bit of 1 Corinthians 15 for just a second. But look at something Paul says, and he just says this just in passing. In a bigger picture context of the resurrection, he's talking about, he's talking about life and death and so forth, and so that's on his mind. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. 
And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. Here is this human being, flesh, blood, and bones, and in him was placed this something spiritual, not something physical. This something that doesn't fall out if you cut him open. Something which is tangible to God, but not to man, a living soul. And the second Adam, the last Adam, that's Jesus he means, was made a, the King James says, quickening spirit. A spirit that gives life to dead things. So in Adam was given this flesh and blood person who by nature of being a mortal being will decay and age and die. Obviously when he's out of the garden that will happen. But within that being who ages and decays and dies is given this eternal essence which will not age, decay, and die. It's eternal in the sense that it has no ending point. It started, but it will not end. Adam will always be. His body will not. His body will in fact change to be something else later in 1 Corinthians 15. But this essence of who he is spiritually will always be. And God gave him that. But Adam and all of us corrupted that spiritual element that we have with sin. And thus we need Jesus to bring this this murdered, killed, plagued by sin spiritual thing back to life again. Because it's always going to exist, but it may exist in death of hell or may exist in life of heaven forevermore and it is jesus who quickens it's jesus who brings to life again that spirit you looking at me right now and i'm looking at you right now and all i see is just who you are physically and you can look at me and i've got this beautiful face and i've got this nice body and i look spectacular but this is not just who i am on the inside is something else and i say inside in a metaphorical sense because you can cut me open it's not going to fall out but there is something attached to me that god gave me which is and shall ever be this eternal link and it's something that no other living being or thing has that we have a star in the night sky that we stare at and wonder because it's just a little pinprick on a velvet canvas but it's so far away that it looks tiny when in fact it's humongous that star is alive it had a beginning point it ages it grows it withers it dies a tree is alive it was a sapling and it was a seed or a seed and a sapling and it was a little bran- little small little twig and it grew big and it sprouted branches and bare fruit and it lives and it grows old and it will die. A turtle begins, lives, and dies. But a turtle has no soul, nor does a tree, nor does a star. We are special, nor does an angel. We are made in the image of God to have something eternal put in us. We have a soul in us. And we, through sin, corrupted that soul. And through Christ, it is made uncorrupted. Through Christ, it is purified. And therefore, we must take that eternal part of us and love God with all of it. Because if I do not love God with all of it, 99 out of 100 is not enough. If it is not 100, then my soul is corrupted just one little degree it is corrupted and if that corruption is not remedied through the christ who can do so if i don't go to the christ to wash that pain away that plague away then my soul will ever be away from him thus i must love god with everything i have all that motivates my existence my life which is more than just this body because this body will not always be one day this body will be hopefully will be old and gray and put in a box And buried six feet under. Assuming the Lord doesn't come back before that. And some of you may stand over that casket. And weep for this shell. 
We've had funerals recently where families stand over a casket and weep for a shell. And rightly so, I understand. You have memories with that shell. You have relationships with that shell. The, the way they speak, the things they've said, they form bonds with a husk. And when that soul leaves its body, that's all it is. It's just a husk, and it goes into the earth. There is something that stays, though. There is something that remains and ever shall be. And with God, you must love with that. You must love God with all that you have. And if it's not with all that you have, then when that body goes into the ground, that soul goes away from that God whom you did not love with all that you had. Love God with all of your essence of life. Third thing Jesus says, love God with all your heart, with all your soul. Love God with all your mind. Now let's take a note of something real quick. When Moses gave the statement to Israel in Deuteronomy, the Hebrew language is a very small language. They didn't have a lot of words. By the time Jesus speaks, and by the time Jesus gives his answer to the question, he took what Moses said, which is love God with all your heart, and he split the two into two words, heart and mind. Whereas Moses meant heart and mind when he said heart, because they just had the one word and it implied both things. By the time Jesus came in, so many other cultures and philosophies and things had expanded on ideas, and words were invented to you know, give meaning to those ideas that were talked about and so as happens with time vocabularies expand well the vocabulary had expanded to where jesus could give two words where moses only had one so in saying what we must love god with all he says love god with all your heart this inner essence which motivates in one case your words but also love god with all of your mind because that inner essence which typically is why you say those things is because you have contemplated on those things. You've meditated on those things. You've dwelled on them. You've stewed over them. If you tell someone, I hate you, and you mean it, rarely does those, do those words just come from nowhere. I mean, you might just blurt them out in traffic, and you don't really mean it if you thought about it. But when a person sincerely says to someone that they've known, I hate you, those words came from contemplation and meditation and stewing over it. Likewise, we should not be so flippant to tell someone we love them as Christians, though it is commanded of us to do so unless we are sincere in our love for them, which requires stewing over it, meditating on it, dwelling on it. I must love God with everything in me that compels me to think about stuff. Listen to how the psalmist begins. Look at Psalm 1.1. Listen to how the very first bit of poetic writing in the biggest book of your Bible. You're the psalmist. You want to start off strong. How do you start? Blessed is the man, the person, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands still in the, in the uh, way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. He's not walking with them. He's not standing with them. He's not sitting with them. He's not sitting and, and having a good time with them. He's not standing and giving them the time of the day. He's not walking with them and passing. He has nothing to do with them. Instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, does he take his mind and stew over it day and night? In his law, does he take with his mind and meditate? The King James says, day and night. I must love God with all of my thoughts, with all of my focuses. That doesn't mean I can't play Nintendo. And when I'm playing Nintendo, I'm probably not thinking about the sermon. This was me yesterday, okay? 
That doesn't mean that I am hating God by doing that. What it means is whatever hobby I may have is not interfering with my love for God. It is not degrading my love for God. There are those things, though, that the devil will tempt you to do or tempt you to be, to walk with or to stand with or to sit with, that by participating, your love for God goes down because you must give your contemplation to these things. You must give your meditation to these things. You must stew over these things which are ungodly. And that cannot be. You must love God with everything you have to contemplate on. He must be the sole focus of your mind. So that even when you're doing something trivial, you realize, I can do this because it's not making God any less important. I'm, I'm not affecting my relationship with God. Whereas if I did that over there, now my relationship is in question. And I'm going to stew over that and meditate on that. And in fact, that's going to help me say no to that. That's drawing near to Christ, and he draws near to you. That's resisting the devil, and he flees from you, James says. So love God with every aspect of you that thinks about things and stews over things and meditates on things. And if you are totally meditating on God, there will be no time to stew on evil things. You simply won't have the time in the day because you're either sleeping or you're stewing over God. There's no room for the devil. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love God with all of your strength. Your Bible might say might. You can hear the similarities in the two words. Love God with all of your means to do. To illustrate that, let's look at three different texts. The first two put this word in a negative context. Look at Matthew 5, verse 13. A very famous text, but we'll read it to make sure we don't misquote it. Matthew 5, verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? King James translation, your Bible might say something like, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, or if the salt has lost its ability to be what salt's supposed to do, then what is it good for? Nothing except to be thrown out into the streets and trotted on the foot of men. That little phrase, what is it good for, is this word might in the negative sense. If salt can't do its job, if it no longer can perform as it's been designed to do or created by God to do, then you cast it aside. It can't do what it's supposed to do. It's not able to anymore. All right, look at the next one. Look at John 21, verse 8. This is as Jesus performs the miracle of um, multiplying the fish that are caught before they have their famous breakfast. And look at the, the word choice by John. John 21, verse 6. And he said to them, Jesus said, cast your net on the right side of the ship and you shall find fish. They cast therefore and now they were not able, the King James says, to haul in the catch. They had no strength, in this case physical muscles, that it was too heavy for them to be able to. They did not have the means within themselves to bring in the catch. That's what the word means in the negative sense. Now look at 1 John 2.14. 1 John 2.14. And listen to when John says, you can do. First John 2, verse 14. John says, I have written to you fathers because you've known him that's from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and have the word of God abiding in you and you have, here's the word, overcome. It's not the word strong. It's the word overcome. You have overcome the wicked one. You have the devil depicted illustratively here as this boulder you have to pick up. And without Christ, it doesn't budge. But then through Christ, you are able to lift it up over your head and toss it into the sea. 
through Christ, you can overcome your inability. You are not able without Christ. You have no strength without Christ, but through Christ, you have the means. But only if you love God with all of your energy. Sound like Macho Man Randy Savage. You must love God with, because you're straining to do it. It's be 100%. Because if you don't give God all of your muscle, if you don't give God all of your spiritual might, you will never lift that rock. It will crush you and consume you. Because that rock is not flat. That rock's on a hill rolling down. And you're trying to stop it from crushing you and pick it up and flip it over your head. Now, it can either crush you or you can toss it like it's nothing. The difference is, do you have Christ or not? The difference is, do you love God with all of your strength? With all of your means to do? I am going to do this thing because God says I can. Because not doing this thing is breaking God's commandment. And that's what sin is. He just said a few verses before that in 1 John 2. So I can do this thing or he wouldn't have commanded me to do this thing. But I will only be able to do this thing through the man who gave the command. He told me I can do it and through him I can. Through him I can do anything be by contentment. First, uh, Philippians chapter 4. That's the context. So I am able to overcome what he had because he's all I care about. He's all I need. He's all I want. He's all I love. What is the proto-command, Jesus? What is the command that motivates my obedience to any other command? Anything else he says, I will do. If he tells me to run through a brick wall, I will start running and hope he'll make the wall go away. Because I'll do anything he says. Why? Because I love him with everything I've got. I love him with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. I love him with all of me. All of who I am belongs to him. Now, what about you this morning? What is your love level for God like? I don't mean to shame you if you're sitting there thinking, well, I can't possibly love God that much. None of us could possibly love God with everything. Of course, you're going to make mistakes. I had a mentor who's now long deceased, Carol Seitz from Higdon. He used to say, people like to say they're going to do their best, but no one ever really does their best all the time. You can slip up. You get tired. You get bored. You get annoyed. You don't do your best. So people like to say, well, I'll try my best. But nobody ever really tries their best all the time. What people need to do is try to try to do their best. That's pretty much what we're asking. Can you try to try to do your best? Because your best is Jesus. That's a goal you're not going to hit. But man, just think if you shot for it. If you just strove for it. How close you could get. Make that your goal. How close can I be like Christ? To love as he loved God with everything he had. I probably, I'm, I'm going to slip up, but I'm going to try to love God. I'm going to try to try with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you've stopped trying to try, then the invitation is for you to repent. Get back in the light, have your sins washed away, and start a new journey. And let us encourage you to love God as much as you can. If we can help you in any way, let us know how right now. Please come as we stand and sing.